Hello and welcome to the Greatest Games Podcast brought to you by 816 Basketball. I'm one of your hosts, Brian Rosefield, and I'm joined by my co-host, Chris de Blasio. Thank you, Brian, for having me in, as always. And reminder, the Greatest Games Podcast is a chance for us to catch up with basketball coaches from around the country and have them tell us about their greatest game. We love for them to tell us all about their coaching career and what led to the game. Uh, it could be a game when they were a JV coach, a high school coach, a college coach, whatever they want, just what they consider to be their greatest game. Well, I'll tell you what, we have a fantastic guest in today, just finished his sixth season at AC Flora High School in Columbia, South Carolina, Josh Staley. Welcome on into the show. Oh, man, appreciate it. Glad to be on. I'm looking for a fun show. Glad you guys have me on. Josh Staley, AC Flora, that's a rival there, the, the Ridgeview Blazers. I don't know, you guys going to get along? I mean, Ridgeview's been winning the last three years, so I don't really know if it's a rivalry. you got to beat the other team. <laughs> well, I'm just saying it's Columbia, just a Columbia Midlands, you know. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Columbia is very competitive. It's actually very competitive, but we actually, believe it or not, when the smoke clears, we cheer for each other, especially when we're going against teams from outside the Midlands. So it's pretty healthy. Yeah, I always find that it's weird. Like, you compete against these guys in your league, but for the most part, like, I'm friendly with the guys in my league where I coach. Like, you know, yeah. so, like, I don't – they get in the States, I'm rooting for them. People are like, oh, don't you hate them? They're in your league. No, I know those guys. I mean, I'm friends with those guys. Yeah, yeah. Columbia, is, is, it's a city, but it's such a small town. And so it's so intimate. So you come in contact with so many of the kids. Like, right now, my oldest son is playing travel ball with several kids that are going – they're going to go to Blythewood. They're going to go to Ridgeview. So, you know, you know these people. So, ultimately, you want what's best for them, except when you play against them. <laughs> well, we thought we were going to have a matchup this year. We were on a crash course in the playoffs, and that was going to be super, super fun. And uh, I know things didn't yeah. work out for where we were able to match up. But, you know, Chris, you mentioned, I mean, the basketball in Columbia right now, I mean, for, for the last several years has been so, so good. And you mentioned Ridgeview has won a couple state titles. But obviously, Josh, you won a state title in 2016 at AC Flora. The basketball right. in Columbia right now is just – it's on a whole other level. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's so competitive. It's so good. And it's, and it's healthy. A lot of people, like, shy away from competition. But competition makes the what? The cream rise to the top, however you say that thing. So it's good and it's healthy. And, you know, at the end of the day, we coach young people. We coach high school kids. So we're helping them pursue goals and aspirations and playing a little basketball while we're at it. So it's really good. Well, that, that brings us uh, to our segment here, Coach, where you give us your coaching resume. Tell us uh, where you've coached and what led you to where you are today at AC Flora. Okay, so I've had a couple of coaching stops. My first head coaching job was at Ellery High School. School, um, the last year in existence, right before we became Lake Marion. So I coached the Ellery boys, that job. That's when I knew I was going to marry my wife because she came to every game of a brutal season. When I say brutal, I mean, it was rough. Like I thought she was going to leave me at one point because like it was, it was bad. Like it was, it was bad. My first game as a head coach, I played against Eric Samuel um, at HK2, HKT who went on to Hartsville and he went on to Coker. Now he's back at Crestwood. And the score was 85 to 5. That was the final score. No exaggeration. It was rough. I had six people on the team at Ellery. And um, I just told the guys, I'm going to stand up with y'all all season. We're going to get beat. We're going to get beat. Um, at the Ellery, I went on to coach Lake Marion girls when the schools combined. Holly Hill Roberts and Ellery came together. So I coached the girls there for a couple of years, had a couple of good seasons. 
And I went to um, OW for about eight years. And then since 2014, I've been at AC Floor. Well, I'm going to jump in right here after that that rundown because your your journey is is very organic in nature. Having games where you lose, you said 85 to five. Is that right? Oh yeah, oh, 80, yeah. I remember. 85. Yeah. yeah. So so starting there and then going fast forward to 2016 to be able to win a state championship. What were some of those lessons that you picked up along the way as a young coach just cutting your teeth? that now are serving you extremely well as a highly successful coach wins and losses wise. Oh man, that to be proudless, like literally. So when I played that, when I became a head coach at um, Ellery, it wasn't planned. So I was a second year teacher in um, Orangeburg for Edisto high school. And I know you guys remember that, but we had that major um, financial crisis in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm, so right. all of the first and second year teachers got laid off. I was a second year teacher, so I got laid off. So, I told my mom, you know, look, I'm either going to go back to D.C. or I need to find a job down here somewhere. So someone said, like, hey, well, they're hiring down at Orangeburg 3. So I went to Orangeburg 3. They said, we need a basketball coach. It's the last year in existence. It's a dead-end job. Would you take it? I said, yeah, I might as well work on my craft. So we started working. Now, mind you, I was an assistant coach at HKT when I left. We had just went to the state championship, lost to Raymond Felton and those guys. So I understood what it took to be a part of a high-level program. And my little brother was on that team. So I was frustrated. So I would talk to my little brother like, hey man, I'm struggling to get the guys to work out, trying to motivate them to lift weights. So when they came in the gym, we were about to play first game of the season. My little brother was like, yo, him and his friends were like, yo, Josh, don't worry. We're going to get these boys for not working hard for you. So I was just like, whoa, but you're getting me also in the process of, of, of showing them what you're supposed to do when you work hard. So that jump ball went up and obviously the game turned out the way it went. And, um, I just learned to be proudless and be humble. I learned everything I was supposed to. Um, I tried my best to learn everything I could learn in that process. Um, so I continued to coach. And um, me and my wife, well, she wasn't my wife at the time. But, you know, we hit the road. I was going to every coaching clinic I can go to. I was talking to every coach I could talk to, especially the older coaches, the Artie Knights, the Alex Barons, the um, um, Debbie Strawmans, Ann Longs, Zach Fredericks. Like, I talked to a lot of coaches. Um, you know, I had a lot of um, intimate um, conversations, Dorothy Fortune. So, because I, I was like, if I want to be a winner, I need to figure out what they're doing. So, I just kept my head down, stay humble, chopped away, chopped away, kept kept understanding what it took to be a better person and a better coach. And before you know it, we were raising a trophy in 2016. But it was funny because um, I got a lot of slack. I lost my first five state championships as a head coach. No, I went five times in a row. Well, not in a row, but I went five times in like a span of like eight years and lost all of them. And um, that's not even including the state championship I lost as an assistant coach. I probably own that one more than I do as a head coach because I really wanted my head coach to win that um, state championship. But Raymond Foden, obviously we all know who he is, one of the best South Carolina players to ever come through, um, has something different in mind. So, you know, I wind up, I was like, I got my feet up under me as a coach. I'm like, okay, I'm winning at a high level, putting a lot of time, sacrifice, and kept God first and never took the credit for anything. Then, boom, I just literally lost five state championships. And so you get to the point where you're like, what do you do next? And what I realized is you don't quit. You make sure it's never about you. And then we finally won one in 2016. You know, you kept, just continue the process. I was grateful for the opportunity to know what it feel like, but it never really was about me. I, I didn't even know how many wins I had as a coach until – my wife tallied them up one day. She got the books on my resume and tallied up all the wins. She's like, do you know how many wins you got? And I was like, I didn't. And 
Patty Moore forced me, my um, assi assistant, ADF Floor, she forced me to recognize my 300 win, which occurred not this season, but um, the season before, um, last year, um, the 2019-2018 the season, she forced me to do it because I wasn't going to do it because everything we try to focus on is about the kids and I don't really believe in coach recognition, so she forced me to do it. And here we are today. So if I was to give advice to a young coach, man, like, you know, just stay persistent. It's not going to be pretty early. Now, some people get sweet gigs early, and you never feel what I felt, but I, I wouldn't change my path for anything. You know, I meet a lot of coaches and talk to a lot of coaches in my job as an AD. And, Josh, you're one of those guys that you have a, a certain energy and a certain aura about you that – speaks to everything that you just said, that it's not about the kids. It's not about the wins. Like you're going to compete, you're going to win, but Hey, we're going to train kids first to be great people and great basketball players. And the wins are going to take care of, of themselves. So it's really neat to get to know you a little bit more now through this show and see where those things match up or your journey has taken you to be the man yeah. that you are now and the coach that you are now. I'm just, it's, it's, it's really, really neat. I want to jump in there before Chris asks you another question. It was just really neat to see, see your journey. <laughs> well, I wanted to say one thing. Um, coach talked about being humble. Uh, and I think you could tell from the moment he started coaching that he was humble when he told that story about, they were like, listen, it's only the school's only going to be around for one more year. Are you willing to take the job? And he's, and it sounded like he said, without a doubt, yes. Yeah. There are a lot of guys that wouldn't say yes to that. There were a lot of people that say, well, what does that, what does one year do me? But I mean, that, that's just a, that's a credit to you that you were willing to take that and build it from there. You talked about some of the coaches you asked for advice when you were coming up. Who are some coaches you still lean on as mentors and, and some of the things they've taught you? Oh man, I talk I talk to Alex Barron a lot still. I still talk to him. Um, he isn't coaching anymore, but he was he was such a really good coach, man. Um, he was so organized. I watched his practices a lot. I talked to Don Staley often. Like she she gave me some advice this year. Um, my big cousin over something that I need to talk about. And um, my peers. I talked to a lot of my peers. I talked to Eric Samuel. I talked to um, I talked to um. Obviously, I talked to Coach English. We do a podcast together about a lot of things. Jacob Smith um, down in the low country. But um, as far as, like, guy coaches I really leaned on, I really leaned on, like, the Dorothy Fortunes of the world. But I talked to Don pretty often. I talked to um, Coach Barron pretty often. And believe it or not, you want to know what's crazy? And you guys probably know where I'm coming from. Like, my wife is probably my biggest, like, crutch when it comes to like getting knowledge you know she um she played division one sports but it wasn't basketball she played softball in college and um you know we talk about a lot and I think as a coach you need someone you can trust to have pillow talk with you know because like once you like you go through you're exposed to so you're ex you you're so much of yourself is exposed as a coach right like, you can't really go to the grocery store and do what you want to do without somebody being like, hey, coach. You can't pump your gas without somebody being like, hey, coach. So you're exposed and critiqued, and, 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 and so much of you is open. So you just need someone you can talk to. So my wife, man, I lean heavy on her. We talk about everything. And um, so it's just, it's just good. That's just one of the things you got to have in this profession. It's a noble profession. It's beautiful. And um, the relationships you establish is, is, is lifelong when you do right by people. And you got to have somebody you can talk to, though. Coach, uh, I went 2-23 and 23 in my first season as a varsity coach this year, and I had nobody to talk to. So can I get your number uh, so I can call you? <laughs> or maybe even call your wife, and she can talk both of us off the ledge. Um, Listen. <laughs> 
Listen, listen, coach, I'm telling you about that ledge, man. This is a true story. I got I got so many stories. So my first year at Ellery, I don't know how we won two games that year, coach, to this day. I still don't know. It's like, it's like it was a blur. I don't even I remember who we beat, but I don't remember how we scored more points than them. So, it, I mean, it was just bad. We probably got average beat by 30. We played Calhoun County that year right before um, Buck Frederick went to Georgia Tech. They beat us 100 to 18. So we got a region play. So I said, I told, I told my guys and the kids, boy, again, we started out with six. We got up to like 10 or 11 guys after the first semester because they had to get academically eligible because they didn't do their work. They didn't like the hard work. So the guys we got academically eligible wound up quitting again. So we were right back down to five or six again. So we was in the region play. So I, I said, you know what, guys, we're going to four corner this thing every night. I said, we're going to get beat. It's not going to be by 50, 60 every night. So we start holding the ball. And this is when I, this is another moment I knew my wife was a real one because we were holding the ball. So the fans were like, what are you holding the ball for? And my wife, you know, she's a quiet, meek lady, but she looked in the crowd and was like, hey, well, how do y'all want it? You want to get beat by 15 to 20 or you want to get beat by 60? Let me know. Or we, you know, we could just roll the ball out and get killed. You know, the, and the fans was like, you know, I understand what you're saying. Right, shut up. Like, we, we, we don't have the personnel to, to score more points than these guys. So, like, I'm not lying, y'all. My star point guard that year was 5-1. I was coaching boards. So it was tough. And he wasn't like a 5-1, a, a like, like Devin Downey size small guy. That was, <laughs> yeah. It was like, it was just like 5-1, couldn't dribble, couldn't shoot. So I was like, oh, shoot. So it was, it was, it was good, man. But it was crazy, though, the relationships that we established, man. And I learned so many lessons that year because one of the best players, and I won't call his name, because this kid recently got arrested not too long ago. And um, he was one of the best players I ever coached. But he was one of those guys that wasn't eligible. And when I say we scrapped to get him eligible, then he wound up quitting again. And he just went down the wrong path. But he was, and that's when I learned, you know, you gotta really put your energy in the kids that really wanna be there. Put your energy in the kids that are doing what they were supposed to do. And then the ones you can save, you will be able to save those. You will be able to save them, but that was probably the hardest lesson I learned as a coach, that you can't save all of them. Lord have mercy on can. Well, Coach, that's going to lead me to my my next question for you. And, I, I, again, I know I've known you, and, I've again, back to that energy that you carry, that aura that you carry, that it's, it's about kids. So I have an idea of what – this answer is going to be, but I really want to hear um, your answer to this question. But how do you define success for each team that you coach? And if you want to extend that to each player that you coach, but how do you define, truly define success for those teams and those kids? Man, believe it or not, man, I meet with my coaches a lot. We talk a lot and we really analyze where we are in each part of the year. You know, you got, you got so-called off season, you got preseason, and then you got the season, then you got right when the season ended, you know, ends, like postseason. So we really like analyze where we are. And the first step, the first thing we really focus on is were the kids disciplined, were they obedient, and were they not getting in trouble around school? So when you, okay, we have some pretty good kids. And um, so we, we, we got them to understand the rules and the process of what we want them to do. And then after that, once you get to the basketball part, we just gauge off what we have. Like we're we're very realistic. Like let's just use this past season as an example. Okay, so we have Patrick Patrick um, Ariel who signed to go to South Carolina. Robert McCray um, emerged as as one of the elite players in the Southeast, and he's probably going to be. And I say this humbly. I'm not bragging on the kid, but he's a good kid, come from a good home. He's probably going to be one of the better players in the country next year. 
just just from the God given stuff and how hard he works. So we got to the point. So I told the coaches before the season started, I said, um, every win we can steal this year, we'll take and um we just go one game at a time. And it's like, what you mean every win we can steal? And I had to remind him, I was like, and you know this, um, Brian, you know this. Patrick was all, was a project. You know, he didn't walk through the door averaging 15 and 16. You know, right. as a freshman, he played five total minutes the entire season. As a sophomore, he started to smell the court a little bit. As a junior, he was starting, even lost his starting spot as a junior at one point. And then this year, he emerged. Like, the summer and spring, he emerged. And this year, he was really solid, averaging like 14, 11 throughout the course of the season. So I was like, let's just continue the process. So afterwards, you know, we got the guys to understand that what it takes for us to be a successful team. So, so we really looked at it as success and everybody bought in. And um, obviously we didn't win it all, but I never, and I never do this, man. I never focus on winning. I know most people are like, man, you're a liar. What are you talking about? You, how you coach don't focus on winning? Because believe it or not, I can't control if we win or not. I know that sounds crazy, but we can't. The only thing we can control is the steps it takes to be successful. Are we practicing hard every day? Are we staying out of trouble? Are the kids respecting their parents? Are, are, are we taking every single rep serious? And we did a tremendous job of that this year. And I think we had a successful year. Why do we have a successful year? We had six freshmen on varsity. When I tell people that, they don't, they don't believe it. We had six freshmen on varsity this year. And they were like, well, what if they were good freshmen? Well, they don't even know how to practice at a high level at a varsity program yet. So it took us all the way probably to the middle of December to get them to understand how you got to go hard every single day. So as far as like success over the years, I've measured my success really on one thing. I know I just went around the whole realm of who's bond, but I'm, I measure my success on one thing, relationships. Are the people that I'm coaching buying in? Do they believe in the coaches? And do we believe in them? And that's it. And, and, and if they come back, I think we were successful. And right now, everyone comes back. And it's been a, a, a good and a bad during this pandemic because everybody's home. They're like, Coach, can we work out? Coach, can we work out? I'm like, no, we can't. One, there's no gym, and then we're supposed to be socially distancing. But relationships, man, and I think that's what we gauge our success on. And because of those relationships, that's when you have moments where a kid like Robert McCray, who's dead tired, gets aching in the second round, gets a big steal for you because he he knows you believe in him. He did everything right leading up to that point, and we caught a break. So that's, that's, how, that's what we base it on, relationships. That's great, Coach. You, you talked about two things I just want to mention there. One, you talked about the, the steps to winning a game, and that's what you're mm -hmm. focusing on. Sometimes I tell people, man, if you knew how hard it was to win just one game, just oh one, like, oh never Lord. mind, never mind win two in a row, just one. And the amount of right. effort and energy that goes into winning one game, you'd be surprised. And, and at each level, it goes up. Like, I was in South Carolina, and, you know, I would have people that I knew that were not part of the university, and they'd be like, why can't we win? Like, <laughs> you know, as our, one of our great mentors, Coach Rick Duckett, used to say, the other team gets scholarships, too. <laughs> like, you know, they <laughs> – um, and the other thing you talked about about is how the kids uh, act around school and how they treat their parents. Um, I, one of the things I loved about one of the guys I worked for, Darren Horn, was he came in and, and he told the kids, we have three rules, only three rules on this team. Don't be late for anything. Do your schoolwork. And don't do anything to embarrass your family, your team, or your university. And I think that third one was so – it wasn't don't do this, can do that, can do this. Don't do anything to embarrass – and he would always tell them, your family first, your family name. Don't do anything to embarrass that name. 
then your school, right. th- then your team, then your then your school. And I just right. thought it's, it's crazy, right? Because you're coaching young folks, so they're gonna they're gonna mess up. So you go into it knowing they're gonna mess up, but you have to have these expectations in place, and um, you have to have doorways to help them go through when they don't meet those expectations so they can learn and not make the same mistake twice. So it, it's so much it takes to win. I've had years where we've done everything right and couldn't get it done. My, um, my first year at Florida, great senior class, did everything right, beat Midland Valley by almost 30 in the um, regular season and lost them in the state championship game. And everybody practiced the right way. Everybody did it the right way. It just wasn't meant to be. But because we did those things the right way, the relationships are still healthy with those young men and, and with the people that were around the program. So it's so everybody says, you know, they say that cliche statement, oh, it's bigger than the game, it's bigger than basketball, but they don't really understand what it takes to under what it takes to make it bigger than the game, make it bigger than basketball. So, you know, it, even at Ridgeview, you know, everybody's like, oh, they won, they won three in a row, but it wasn't easy. You know, it took a lot to go well. I just watched Dorman win, what, four in a row? It took a lot to go right to win at that level. And when you do things the right way and you and you get some breaks, you accept it, man, and, and you have some success. Well, I think you bring up a great point, too, about the process. And I know that's a big cliche here the last few years, like fall in love with yes, the process, Lord. fall in love with the process. But I really believe it. And I talk to my coaches all the time, like, yes, we want to establish a culture of winning. Now, what does that mean? We're going to show up, we're going to work hard and all, we're going to teach our kids to compete. But like, can you truly fall in love with waking up on a, I don't know, on a Saturday morning and coming into the gym after you've played on a Friday night and getting some shots up when we're in non-quarantine times, of course. But like, can you love that just as much as lacing them up and getting out there in front of a few thousand people and playing? Because there's, there is no difference. Like, you know, and the other thing is too, like in uh, this, this idea of attachment, like if, if, if our kids or coaches are attached to this, we've got to win, we got to win that state championship. Well, now if you get there, now what's going to happen? You're going to be, you're going to be tight. You're going to be, Oh, we're here now. Now what do we do? But if you have put in those reps, that process every day, it's just another game is when you, if you can, if you can approach it that way. So I just, again, I, I love, I love a lot of what you say. I've always loved the way you approach the game. So it's, it's yeah, yeah, and it, it is huge that you say that process is cliche. I know we got to move on, but I think the biggest mistake most people make with the word process, young players, um, young co- well, coaches, period, not just young coaches and um, players, period is they don't understand that failure is like a vital part of the process. Yes. You know, failure is a vital part of the process and you have to learn from those things. And that's why you got to be prideless. That's why you got to be humble because when you're prideful, man, the referees, man, or, or, or man, whatever, man, man, that just, you know, they cheating. No. What can we learn from this, this process to get better so we don't do it again. And like you said, falling in love, with the process, man, like a lot of parents, you know, they want their kids to go to college and get scholarships, but they're in the way of the process. Like I put a tweet out there today and, and I just simply said, as a parent, be the first person that does not pass your kid the ball. Most people just think, oh, he's just talking about basketball. No, sometimes your kid is going to get looked off. Sometimes somebody's going to say, I like that option on the fast break more than your kid. And what, and all of that is relevant to life. Sometimes you're not going to be the best. Sometimes you're not going to be the choice, but if you keep your head down, you keep working, you put yourself in a, it's all about, the process is simply about putting yourself in a better place each day. That's it. Because that's the only thing you can control. 
Uh, we we all just watched the Jordan film. You you telling me that Carl Malone didn't deserve to win a championship? He was phenomenal. John Stockton was one of my favorite point guards of all time, but he was just going against Jordan and Pippen. Mm -hmm. You know, so mm -hmm. it's it's you have to embrace every aspect of the process, not just the ones that that, that favor you and you favor. Um, we're gonna I'm gonna keep interrupting here before we get to the greatest game because you just keep saying such great things. Um, the when the Golden State Warriors won their first NBA championship what, four or five years ago, whatever. Uh, two days later, I heard an interview with their owner on the radio. And when they said, oh, you bought the team in 2011, you know, Steph Curry had just finished his second year, but he was injured. You just drafted Klay Thompson. You know, you guys only won 26 games that year. And he, had, he said a quote. I wrote it down, and that piece of paper hangs above my desk back at home. I'm at home right now. But that piece of paper hangs above my desk since that day, and it says, failure is an inevitable partner on the road to success. Mm. And yes, I wrote that down on a yellow legal, and it's above my computer at all times. Yeah, it is. It is and it's powerful because it's like failure also can be like a, a, a shadow of Fear, if not handled the right way, you know, because people can be afraid to fail. You know, the old saying, scared money don't make none, you know, <laughs> in the rap songs and all that. But it's, it's so powerful because it's true, because when you become afraid to fail, you become afraid to take all the steps necessary to be successful. That's why you have crazy dudes like Dennis Rodman diving in the stands, you know. That's why you have coaches like, like I remember I've had games where I've started a kid that didn't play all season because they practice harder than the guys that was before them. Now, I remember one parent, I was at OW, and one parent was like, oh, Lord, he's starting these kids, and we wound up winning that game. Heck, this year alone, when we played a team, I started all my freshmen and one senior because they were busting their tails in practice. And I told the guys, before we went out there, I said, because we're doing the right thing, they're practicing harder than y'all, watch y'all have a lead when y'all get in the game. They got in the game, they had a lead. Because you can't be afraid to fail when you're trying to get the right results out of the process. It's just, it's so many, that could be a whole nother podcast because there's so many layers to that thing. There's so many layers, but I'm going to go ahead and stop. I know, let's, let's, let's keep it moving. <laughs> well, we, we, the, the answer is we need to have you back to talk about that because I've got let's do more it. questions. I could, I could talk for you. I know Chris is over there laughing because I could talk about this stuff all day <laughs> long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you, know, you can, you can, you just know that I'm, I'm, this is like a buffet of just all sorts of goodness. And then so, <laughs> but, but let's go ahead and get to the, the, the main, the main event of the podcast, even though that's, I love all of what we were just talking about the greatest game. So the greatest game you've ever been a part of with as much background information as you can tell us and why this game is so special to you. And if you got a couple of them, that's totally cool too, Josh. All right. So I think the one I sent you guys, I, I would say the greatest game, and I've been a part of a lot of really good games with a lot of good kids, a lot of good coaches. But the uh, 2016 Upper State Championship game versus Seneca um, versus Coach Padgett, who does such a tremendous job at Seneca before. I think they just dropped down to three a couple of years ago. Um, that game was such a great game. They had, they had a couple of Division One guards. We had a couple of um, college guards, Division One guards and college guards. And um, it came down to the wire. So... In a nutshell, this is how the game went. Seneca played this really, really tough three-two matchup. It was hard to crack it. And um, you guys know, you know anything about high school sports. I don't care how much you practice against the zone. As soon as you get in the game, your kids tend to act like 
they've never seen a zone in their life. Your zone can be your base defense yourself. And then you see the other team running, they like looking at you like, what they're running. I'm like, oh, Lord, are you serious? So it was nip and tuck the entire game. It was stressful. We were down. I think we might have been trailing by like four or five throughout the course of the game. And uh, my guys just weren't being aggressive. I got on James Reese one time. He drove baseline. And it, what broke it was right before um, – you know, the half, James Reese drove baseline. And he wound up going up, dunking it with two hands. And um, I think he shocked himself when he did it. And then we kind of like, we went into the half halftime and kind of regrouped like, look, guys, we got to get more ball movement. So I honestly, I put the ball in Kendall Hampton hands and kind of got out the way. I mean, they went an odd front. So I put Thomas Hollisworth in the high post. We had Deshaun Thomas, uh, who played the five fours. He wasn't extremely skilled as far as scoring to the basket. So we just put him around, run the base, um, run that short corner so we can get some putbacks. And Kendall Hampton just made some really big shots in that third quarter and kind of opened it up for us. We were able to get a lead a little bit. We got, I think we got up maybe like six or eight at one point um, late in the fourth. And then we wound up blowing that lead. And it was like 40, no, like 26 seconds to go in the game. And Seneca was down by one, if I'm not mistaken. One or two. No, they were down by, by by two. And I think they hit a three and they wind up going up. I didn't have any more timeouts. Kendall Hampton, we got into our secondary break. Kendall Hampton, they threw the ball at Kendall, which we call him Buster. Just graduated from college. And that's a whole other story within itself. I'm so proud of that kid. Because when I took the floor job, a lot of people was like, he's not going to make it. So he just graduated from college and is about to go play um, pro ball overseas. So that's a whole other story within itself. He pushed the ball up the floor, beat his first defender, threw it to James Reese in the corner. James Reese hit the big three. As we, I think it was down to about seven seconds at that point. Seneca still had another chance. They took the ball out. Got an unbelievable look from the wing to this day. I don't know why they – because they were down by two. I don't know why the kid didn't head fake and go to the basket. To this day, I don't know why he didn't do it. Because if he would have head faked him, because Deshaun committed to contesting the shot. If he head fakes and go to the basket, he scored. So he wasn't all the way back in transition, but he missed it. Ball bounces out. Um, I think Deshaun winds up um, dunking it and as time expires. And we went on to win the state championship that year. But that was such a great game on so many levels because it was a chess match the entire game. No one really pressed. No one – we didn't really get into our transition because they did a good job of getting into their zone every possession. And he really forced us to take our time on offense every possession, especially in that second half. And it was, it was a great game. It was a great game. Coach, talk about the, the play again where you hit the game-winning shot. If, if I had it right, you said, uh, who was it, Hampton? Kendall Hampton brought it up, passed yeah, it ahead, yeah. passed yeah, it ahead so to Buster, and you said Buster drove? No, no, Buster is Kendall <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. So, so, so that's, just, that's just his nickname around Columbia. So Kendall, so, so, so Buster pushed the ball up in transition um, and, and kicks it to James Reese in the corner right in front of our bench. And um, James Reese takes the shot without hesitation. Talk and, about um, the maturity of a kid like that to come up. So many kids we see now will come down on that play and they'll force the shot themselves. They'll try to get in the paint or they'll pull. Talk about the maturity and the confidence you had maybe as that play was happening that he would make a pass to an open teammate. Yeah. You know, Kendall was probably one of the – smartest basketball players that I've ever coached. My sons ask me, especially my middle son, Jason, they always ask me, who's your best player you ever coached? Who's your best player? Because they like to hear me say Buster. 
they like to hear me say Kendale Hampton because he was really good. And, um, you know, a little backstory on Kendale, why he passed that ball. He made the right play all season. He was always under control. My assistant coach said it one day. He's like, yo, you never realize I've never seen Kendale fall down except when he was diving for the ball on the floor because he's always under control. Even on and ones, I said, you're 100% right. I said, he's always under control. So when we got into our secondary, it was just like practice, which gets back to those things where we talked about process, you know, the, doing the right things every single day on what it takes to be successful. And when, Ken, when we took it out, because believe it or not, Kendall beat his first man. He beat the first man easily. And as the defense was collapsing, he didn't, he didn't take the bad shot. He kicked it, he kicked it to James Reese, man. And um, that was such a mature decision. And James Reese was in the pocket. He was ready to knock it down. And that's what happened. Well, you talk about two really high-level players in, uh, in Hampton and, and Reese. And if, if I remember right, you correct me if I'm wrong, did Hampton just finish at, at Central Missouri? Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Yep. The greatest yep. nickname of all time, the Mules, if I remember their mascot, <laughs> the Mules. I love it. I think it's, yeah. it's, it's so cool. But between yeah. him and, and James Reese, who is just an absolute just pogo stick, who is is now at – he's at North – is he North, North Texas? Texas. North, North Texas, Texas now. Yep. Um, yeah, so just – an absolute killer instinct, and we've been fortunate to have you guys at the Bojangles Bash over, over the over the years, and seeing these kids come through through the gym at Ridgeview. So, can you tell us a little bit more about those two kids? Maybe even speak a little bit more about James, just kind of that killer instinct that both of those guys have. Yeah. So, way, like, coach, bo- coach, let me interrupt you for one second. You get an extra twenty dollars if you mention the Bojangles Bash. I don't know if you know that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Right. So he, he always brings it up on this podcast. Let me, oh, let me bring it up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let me bring it up. Bojangles Bash. Bojangles Bash. Oh, that's 40 right there. I love it. That's <laughs> more than worth it. <laughs> so, so, like, a backstory on both of those guys. I, I give it to you both of them because I think both of their stories need to be heard. Um, and I say this. They, they, they're two kids that don't come from a lot of wealth, don't come from a lot of money. Um, the societal norm would be to overlook those kids, you know, because I'm not expecting much from them in society. and um, Kendall, man, I'm in my first conversation with him, and it was just simply, oh, are you going to work hard do what you're supposed to do? He's like, yes, sir. He wasn't a very good student. Um, his grades weren't very good. And um, it was so rewarding when he graduated. That was probably the first graduation I cried at mm. was, was Kendall. I didn't let the guy see me cry until I walked off. <laughs> and, um, yeah, you know, but um, they probably go, they listen to this podcast, they're going to be like, oh, man, Coach, I didn't know you cried. Because we'll, we'll take that quickly. Day, yeah, it took it took so much that year um, from the teachers working with us every single day, um, from Kendale fighting every single day, his peers tutoring him every single day. Because, you know, he had some things he needed to work on. And the basketball part was easy because he was so talented basketball-wise. I think if Kendale Hampton – and this will make some people mad, right? If Kendale, if Kendale, if Kendale Hampton had more of a supporting cast, um, people really, really digging in on him earlier – we're talking about him, you know, you know, North Carolina's coming in trying to sign him. That's how talented he is. He shoots the ball at an unbelievably high rate. He's going to make a lot of money, God willing, playing basketball over the next eight to 12 years, you know, because, you know, and he, he's a kid that's hungry. He's home on the quarantine now. He texts me, he wants to get to work. And um, because um, everybody's kind of in, you know, limbo right now because they don't really quite know what's going to happen, especially with the kids that play overseas. And um, so that's Kendall's story in a nutshell. You know, he's a kid, didn't come from a ton, but he worked his tail off to get where he was. 
And um, I get I get foggy eyed talking about it, even my wife and my kids, because we all know Kendall's story from coming to my house over the summer for weeks at a time doing e-learning to make sure he get what he needs to be successful. And James Reese's story is very similar. You know, um, both of these guys come from single parent homes, you know, younger siblings um, that they got to look out for it and, and try their best to be a good role model for. And um, James Reese was the same way. He grinded. He's a gym rat. He's out in Colorado training right now. And um, he texted me the other day. He's like, Coach, I'm coming home on the 22nd. As soon as I get off the plane, I'm coming to you. So I was like, that's fine. I have no problem with that. And he's hungry. And that's what that's those were the things that I mean by what defines a successful program, right? Because you said it like James Reese was he's, he was a killer. He was a dog. He was determined. So ultimately you're gonna win a few, you're gonna win some games with kids like that. But what's more important to me is that that kid said, Coach, as soon as I get off the plane, I'm coming straight to you. But my, I mean, go see your mama first, son. Don't come straight to me when you get off the plane. But the fact that, you know, these are kids that statistically aren't supposed to be doing what they're supposed to do. And as a coach, it's even more humbling. Like, I'm, like I've never understood arrogant coaches. Like, I don't understand how you can be a coach and be arrogant. Because the ball, whether you coach football, baseball, basketball, hockey, or lacrosse, all it takes is one instance for the ball not to bounce your way, and your career can go spiraling down the stream. So it's such a, it's a humble, you have to be humble in this element because you need people to carry out your vision. And sometimes people are going to be like, yo, this dude don't know what the heck he's talking about. So when these people believe in your vision, and think about James Reese is playing high-level Division One basketball now. and he, he's worked out with so-called pro trainers. Um, NBA coaches come to practice. And for him to say, yo, coach, when I get off this plane, I'm coming to work with you. You know, he's not calling anybody else. I'm coming to work with you. That's even more humbling, you know. Um, so James Reese, man, you know, he's a kid, and he was just determined. He keep, And believe it or not, you know, James was another one I got on. And, and, and something – I would um, try to get coaches to focus on is get kids to get rid of stigmas, like get every kid to believe in himself. I know that's cliche. I know that's cliche. Be like, hey, I believe in you. So believe in yourself. But it is so powerful when you can get kids to believe in themselves. James Reese was an average student and I would be on him every day. Bro, you smart. Stop acting like you don't want to be smart. This boy made over 1,200 on the SAT the first time he took it. So, and it's just like, and it's just like, man, you have this type of power inside of you, embrace it. And he's another one that I know is going to make a lot of money playing basketball over the next, over the next eight, 10, 12 years, because he, he's, he's, he's doing those things. And um, that's just the background story. So when he hit that shot, when he hit that shot, man, it was, it was, one of my friends was like, oh, you were so calm when he took the shot. Cause like I watch him take that shot every day. Every day he gets up shots. Every day he takes, he puts in the time. So I knew he was going to make it. And um, one of the biggest lessons I think James learned is when we didn't win in his senior year, we were disappointed. And I won't get into the story because I guess that's kind of like a prop story on why he feels we didn't win at all his senior year. He wanted to walk off instead of shaking um, Wilson's hand when they beat us in that third round at Lower State Semis. And I grabbed him. And I was like, don't go out like that. Because this is not how you didn't get to this point with that mentality. So he turned around and shook hands. So that was probably my proudest moment of him. Not that high percentage game he shot in the state championship we won, but the fact that he did that. And I was like, sir, son, you leave in high school with two state championships, a college scholarship, 
and your mom don't have to worry about what's next. A, a, a penny to go to college. So that's a lot to be thankful for. So that's a little background story of those two guys. And it was crazy that I never really made that connection that boom, boom, that pass and, and knocked it down and ultimately went on to win it. So you talk about that calmness, coach, just briefly. Uh, one, it reminds me of the play that when Villanova made the shot and Jay Wright was completely composed, but it also reminds me of I, I wish I could coach like Tony Bennett at the University of Virginia. I mean, that guy, there is, he is never distressed. He is because, you know, he, he is, his team is prepared and they've done it in practice. They've done that process. I mean, to come from what, no, and what happened to them. I mean, yeah, they got beat by a 16 seed and everyone kind of made fun of them, but to come back the next year and win the national title. And like I said, he's never distressed. He's always calm, no matter what's going on in the game, because they've prepared, they've done that process. And, like you said, with, with those two kids, with uh, Kendall and James, you knew that even if, even if James misses the shot, everything was done correctly. Right, right, right. Whether that shot go, and that's probably why I was so calm because I was good with what it took to get to that point to have that shot, mm -hmm. you know, and um, everybody talks about pressure. I don't believe in pressure. I think preparation eliminates pressure. You know, pressure is, pressure is for the unprepared. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? And um, the more you work and it's it, the more you are, because like, it is crazy because my, my wife has this stone cold mentality. And that's probably why I married her. I, I initially tried to marry a six, five woman. She said I was too short. So I went, I went on to my wife and was like, look, man, I need to marry a really athletic woman because um, I, I, I want my kids to be athletic. And you know, my sons are just like her. They're unbelievable athletes. My oldest son is starting to understand it. Like, Pressure comes is for the unprepared, you know, and if you're going to be serious about playing sports, you got to take advantage of the opportunity to get better every day. So, and that goes to the young players. If you aren't getting on the people's nerves that take care of you or that coach you, you're not working hard enough. Oh, wow. You're not working hard enough. So, that's how it All is. All right, Coach, we finish here with, with a question. If I asked a kid who played for you that first year at Ellery, and I asked a kid that played for you this year at AC Flora, what, when they're doing their Coach Staley imp impression, because every, every kid has, a, a, has an impression of their coach, what would be the one thing they say that Coach always says this? This is something Coach Staley always says. Two things, man. Be humble. Be humble. And it's not what you do, it's how you do it. Simple as that. Just, Simple just as that. Simultaneously drop all three of our mics on that one. That's uh, <laughs> I can't drop my mic because I don't own it. This is my friend's mic. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, Coach, it's just been an absolute pleasure, and I mean it. We're going to have you back, and we can talk more about some more esoteric-type stuff. And it's just, you know, what a what a great privilege it is to be able to be in the same city with you, watch you doing the job that you're doing. The wins and losses, like I said, they take care of themselves. But to, to right. see you be the person that you are and the coach that you are at AC Flora has just been a real pleasure. So can't thank you enough for coming on. No, nah, man, look, thank y'all for having me. I look forward to being on again. This was fun, professional. I love it. Got some good laughs, so let's do it again and keep going with y'all doing. And he's a great follow on Twitter, Tal underscore Elon underscore Ali. We'll put that in the show notes. I, mean, I might be uh, butchering the pronunciation, but you're, you're a great yeah, follow. Yeah, that's no, you got him right. That's all my son's name. Tal oh, cool. <laughs> Jason, Jason, middle name is Elon, but I think Elon flowed a little better than Jason. And then, Leo is my last son. His middle name is Ali. So I just, you know, Muhammad Ali, that's kind of tough. So. 
There you Scare go. some people away. <laughs> <laughs> you, you put great stuff out there. You're always entertaining to follow on there. So, but again, thanks for coming on. And so for my co-host, Chris de Blasio, I am Brian Rosefield. And thank you for listening to this episode of the greatest games 